Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. The Cutting Room is a part of the podcast section of The Art of the Guillotine. Each week, The Cutting Room visits editors in their cutting rooms, where they discuss their experiences and techniques. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Cutting Room. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes by searching The Cutting Room. This week, I'll be joined by Christopher Nelson, who's the editor of Lost, The West Wing, and Six Feet Under. He joined me via phone from Los Angeles in the beginning of October, and here's the interview. I guess we'll start off with, uh, well, first, thank you for allowing me to interview. And how did you get into film editing? <laughs> uh, kind of an unlikely tale, I guess. I, I actually, it's, it's kind of a cliche. I, uh, I got a job in the film library at Universal, excuse me, in the mailroom at Universal. And almost everybody in the mailroom was connected somehow to some executive there other than myself. And so they they were always, they were kind of like in place waiting for some kind of junior executive job to open up. And I was there like six weeks and a, uh, a job opened up in the film library there. And I went, well, that's better than what I'm doing now. You know, I was like, I don't know, 20 years old or something, 21 years old. And, uh, and nobody, none of the other guys who'd been there a long time wanted it because they wanted to, you know, what they thought was like a real job, you know, and the, working in the film library, you were an apprentice film editor. So it got me in the union. I spent some years there. Uh, and at that time in the editor's guild, uh, there was an eight year rule. So basically it was divided, it was divided into group three, group two and group one and when you were group one you could be a film editor and you had to wait eight years be in the union for eight years and so even to work as an assistant editor in those days you had to be a group two i mean you could get a job as an assistant but you wouldn't other other people could bump you from it so i spent four years in the film library just kind of hanging out so you know because i needed to work more steadily and then as i became a group two i became an assistant uh actually uh I think I was in the film library five years, and then I was an assistant editor for like two and a half years, and I became an editor. Oh, wow. So uh, you were part of group three then, originally, in the film originally, library? Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, it, you know, when you're kind of, you know, young and married and you need you need a paycheck and all that kind of stuff, it was, it was literally, I, I mean, this is a long time ago, and I don't want to date myself too bad, but the... Uh, I think I was making $95 a week in the mailroom and an apprentice at that time made a hundred and a quarter. And, and, uh, and I became a, actually became a film librarian like seven months after I became an apprentice because they, it's not a job that everybody's looking for, you know? And, uh, and that paid like $140 a week. So, you know, it was like from, from where I was in my world, that was a huge change. And I learned a lot. Um, you know, as a film librarian, we were, I was responsible for, you know, all the stocks film being used on several shows and finding anything they needed, taking care of the stuff they shot specifically for the show and cataloging it. And, um, and one of the guys I was an apprentice with there, uh, was really into film and, and, and film opticals and all that. And he taught me a whole bunch, you know, and I, you know, because, you know, if I'm getting off the track here, I'm probably way off off the rails already. But even but even then, you know, as a film librarian, we had to help 
uh, write-up optical count sheets that related to the stock film being used in certain episodes. So uh, I would always go down to Universal Title and Optical and, and you know, sit there with the lineup guys and say, you know, how do you do this? Why do you do that? You know, go and watch them, you know, with the optical cameras. And, you know, learned a lot about how film works, you know, and how film opticals work and all that, which when you're an assistant film editor in film, and you actually have to, you know, look at the film and take, you know, try to trans, you know, uh, transfer the information written on it and lines and all that into a thing that a, into a document that the optical lineup guy can read that then he can prepare to go in camera and it comes about, you know, as a montage looking like you thought it would look. You know, it it actually is pretty complicated. Oh wow. You know, now we just tell the avid to make a a list and it it, it does that all for you automatically. Well, the, I guess that's a, a good area to go. I have two questions from what you were just talking about. How did you get from there to television editing? Is it uh, like you working your way up, or? Well, the film library uh, in in at Universal in those days, film librarians supported certain certain television shows. So I, you know, my, the the shows that I was given to to work for was like Ironside, and there was like a couple of episodes of what was then called the Sunday Mystery Movie, which was like uh, McMillan and Wife and the Doctors and, you know, every, and Columbo. And uh, so I had a couple of those that I would, you know, they needed a shot of a city or a car run bys or whatever. So you'd call everybody in town and, and get that stuff. And if they shot anything specifically for their series, then you the film would come straight to me and we'd catalog it in a way to where we could, you know, always easily find it and get it back to the editors as they needed it. So we worked with the editors and the producers doing that. What was your first official editing? So you weren't an assistant anymore, but a first show. And how did that come about? Um, as an editor, I mean, as an assistant editor, I actually was given film to cut on, I think, day one, if not day two. And I, I didn't know what to do. You know, I, I, you know, I didn't even know how to keep it in sync, you know. But, you know, if you're tenacious... And you know what doesn't look good, then you just keep playing with it until it. it either, I always, I've always found, and sometimes it's even even uh, even the case today. You know, it's not right, and you don't know why. You know, and so you you do something, and it either gets better or it gets worse. And so if it gets worse, then you go, hmm. Well, making it tighter didn't make it better. Maybe I need to make it looser. You know, and it, in some cases, it really is an experiment, a process of elimination and try and being tenacious enough to keep trying until something seems to, to get better because it is sometimes it is truly a mystery why something doesn't work well. You know, the rhythms aren't right. You're not emotionally engaged. Everything seems like it should be okay. And, uh, and it's not, and you just don't feel anything when you think you should feel something. And you can't, nobody can figure out why, you know, sometimes it's really a, I remember back to, I think it was the finale episode of China Beach that I was working on. And there was a scene in which Dana Delaney was with this guy who was basically being kept alive. And when they, uh, when they, when they undid this thing that was keeping him alive to try to do the surgery, they knew he was going to die like in 30 seconds. And it was really a good scene, but it just didn't have the emotional value, you know. And I, I remember vividly that when I figured it out, and it was because it was written wrong, and and it was, I think she said something like, you know, uh, 
they've severed your, you know, your spinal cord is severed. They put these pants on you to keep you alive, something, something, something. And we could, you know, just wasn't as good. And finally I figured out that the spinal, your spinal cord is severed should have been the the end of the sentence, not the beginning of the sentence. So I, I, I moved that around. And next time I ran for the writers and the producers, they all went, Oh, that's so much better. And no one knew what I'd done. <laughs> they, you know, they, they, didn't know what had happened, but they knew it, it now had resonance where before it was lacking. And it was just as simple as, you know, the, the strongest words were in the wrong part of the sentence. Well, that's, that's interesting. As editors, we always come up against a scene that we're trying to tackle and we can't figure out why it's not working. Now, do you yeah. have anything that you do to help you sort of get past, I guess, like an editor's block? Well, actually, there's a couple of things. And, and I would say, Almost every scene, even if you're working in episodic TV, where you've basically cut a version of the same scene in the same room with the same people last week, mm-hmm. the, dyna- the di- every time they do it, even if they do reshoots, the dynamic is different. It can't be the same scene it was last time. You know, the rhythm, the patterns, or whatever. So, so everything always has a little bit of something that that makes makes it harder to cut on auto- autopilot, I guess you'd say. But a lot of the things I, I ask myself is, I mean, some of the first things I, 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 if it's a drama or dialogue scene or, you know, let's say it's a dialogue scene is I, I look at it and I go, okay, what's important here? What's the story I'm trying to tell? What's the story that's most important here? Who's important? Who's not important? You know, so I'm kind of always filtering it through what is the most important value that I'm trying to get from the scene, which also then indicates tone and whether I should be on action or reaction, you know, depending on whose character is, you know, are, are, are the words important that I see them or is it important that I watch somebody listening to them? You know, so you're, I'm constantly doing that, trying to, you know, I guess you'd say, you know, in a lot of ways, the editor's job is to, besides doing that, you know, it's also to make sure all the best film is in the show and, um, and that you've, minimize your weaknesses, performance, coverage, whatever, as best you can. You know, so there's always strengths and weakness. So you always try to play to the strengths and, and make the weaknesses not look like a weakness. You've done some pilots for some pretty big shows, Six Feet Under, for example. Mm-hmm. When you approach a pilot, at what stage are you brought on? And how do you go about developing a style in the cutting room for them? Um, sure. Um, usually... In in most cases, I am not brought in very early, you know, which is usually a facility of, of budget. They don't want to pay the editor to hang out while they're in prep, and uh, so in many cases, you show up on on uh, you know they start paying you on the first day of production, so the next day you're getting dailies. Uh, sometimes it's a lot. Some people, some directors, are a lot more communicative. And others aren't. And some people are very dogmatic in what they want. And again, others want to be surprised. You know, um, that's always the best uh, thing to be in. But as far as style, I, I guess I would like to say I don't think I ha- have a style. That it's always trying to. I'm sure. I'm sure I can see how I do things. I will do things in certain ways or approach problems in certain ways. But as far as you know, style, I guess for style's sake, I, I, 
I would hope I don't have one, but I'm trying to just accommodate the subject, the film, the the nature of what this film is supposed to be as best I can. And the style comes from the subject, the direction, the performances, the words, all of that. And, you know, and you take all that and it, 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 in some ways, it naturally adapts itself to what it should be. You know, if you're doing like, mm, let's say ER or something where it, you know, it had all, you know, it was kind of revolutionary and all this, you know, real handheld camera and just all kinds of energy going on. It's obvious that you're supposed to cut it very tight that, that, and, and you're supposed to cut a lot because it, it, it helps complement the frenzy of the emergency room. And so you're trying to keep that, you know, that kind of thing. But, but, you know, it's not like you're trying I would say if I was cutting that, I, it's not like I'm trying to create a style. It's obvious that that's what that particular thing wants to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I interviewed for, for the Six Feet Under pilot, uh, when I met with Alan, you know, I thought we had a really good interview. Obviously, we did. I got the job. But um, I was just in my car, and my agent called me, and, you know, it, they said uh, that they called. They thought it was a great interview. They wanted to see the West Wing pilot, which I'd cut. And I'm going, oh, no. That shows nothing like this show. I don't want him to think that that's all I can do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and because we can't, I think we can so easily become pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I said, you know, would you call him and ask him? I'll absolutely send him the West Wing pilot. But I can I can I try to quickly pull together some scenes that I think are more representative of what this film should feel like, or at least I think it should feel like, based on you know reading the script. And uh, you know. I don't know how much or little effect any of the film that I sent had on him. But, um, you know, it, it was funny that, you know, having somebody calling for the West Wing pilot isn't a bad thing. But, when you know, I panicked because I thought if, if, if they pigeonhole me that it's all fast like that and overlapping everywhere, you know, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. You know, they'll think I'm not the guy for them. How do you go about, I mean, this is one instance where you've gone to make sure that you're not, held to a style but how do you what do you recommend for editors out there you've uh, got many different styles that you've edited I have you know once again style is a word I'm a little oh, sorry I don't no that's okay it's a, it's a word that in general I would say I'm a little reluctant to use mm-hmm. but I can I can tell you that let's say I'm trying to think of a variety of things I've worked on and you know, like, obviously, West Wing, everybody talks over the top of each other almost all the time. Mm-hmm. And in the, pilot, in the pilot particularly, that's exactly what Tommy thought it should be. Literally everything. And there were some places where I thought I need to open up moments, because I thought little moments needed... I mean, and when I say moments, we're talking about instead of somebody picking up their cue right away, it's maybe a second and a half pause, maybe two seconds. But I thought there were certain lines that need, needed to settle and resonate on the character. Otherwise, the gravity of the situation wouldn't settle in, you know. And so in, in like maybe only a half a dozen places, I worked really hard at basically slowing it down, trying to, you know, and when, you know, when the actors didn't perform it that way, you're, you're stretching every single frame in every way you can to try to just 
sustain one one little moment. And when Tommy saw it, he went, I didn't expect that, but you're right, that's exactly what it needed, you know. And I think, in a lot of ways, I think you just run on instinct. Mm-hmm. I can't define it any more than that is, you know, like if somebody, if you were a director and somebody was bringing you wardrobe samples and you went, "Mm, I like the blue one better than the red one, you know, you can't say why, but for whatever reason. Uh, And I think in, in a lot of ways, editing is at least for me like that. Um, And it's probably different because I've been doing this a long time. I don't think anything has really fundamentally changed in me. I remember, in the very, very beginning as being an editor that even as an assistant editor cutting that I would look at, I most always look at daily, you know, a scene to cut dailies. And if it's not going the way I think it should be, then I immediately start to try to correct what, correct the scene. So it feels right for me with the rhythms and the beats in the right place. And I I don't really intellectualize it other than this feels wrong. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I work really hard only to find out I can't succeed and make it work because because of matching issues or something. If you're trying to shift performance, like the performance is wrong, but I've got enough of kernels of the kind of performance I want or more in the na- nature of the performance I want to try to skew it in a different direction, you know, you know, like how many time, how many, for how many lines can you stuff the, the offstage performance from somebody else's close-up into into an actor's mouth, only to find out that they then didn't say the punchline the same. They didn't even say the same words, and you couldn't use it. You know. When you were at Prime Cuts, you brought a scene from Mad Men that was mm-hmm. originally two scenes. You brought them together to create one that that was flashing back. Right. When you're when you're doing something like that, you're going to be changing the length of the film or the show. How do you go about cutting a TV show to make sure that it fits into the time slot, but still so that the rhythms and the beats and the timing all works within the scene? I would say most of the time we approach the show is let's try to make the best show we can first and then let's worry about time. And obviously, I mean, I've had I've had lost episodes and lost. I think, you know, the the raw show itself is like 42 and a half minutes. And I had a first cut come in at 62 minutes. So we're talking, you know, so there's the fact that you're 20 minutes long is never far from your mind when your show is that far over, you know? Yeah. Uh, and um, usually it's like the first, in, even, a, you know, in episodic television, I'd say an idea for a good episode. If you have a bad episode where there's maybe some unsuccessful scenes, actor was really bad or, you know, God knows what then you're really thrilled that you're long because you can just get rid of it mm-hmm. you know, compared to if it's like, oh my God, we're barely on footage and this person sucks and we're, you know, and it'll put us three minutes short. The network will give you variances, never over, but always under to a little degree of maybe a minute or two. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's an issue we deal with, but we almost deal with, in some cases, the length issue. Everybody, every producer deals with with it in a different way like on Mad Men Matt Weiner I would never cut one of his lines ever without mm-hmm. him telling me to and and we will discuss all that and basically Matt will always go can you just tighten the show up and so I don't have to take anything out you know can you do that so I don't have to take anything out and then I'll, invariably I'll do that he goes oh this, some of the stuff is too tight 
and we'll put that back, and then he'll have to start talking about what to lose. Where, uh, let's say, when I, I, I did a, a, I've done a slew of work for John Wells. Mm-hmm. And so when I would work for John, he would just go, the scene's too long. Okay. And that would be it. We'd never talk about anything. And, and it was understood that I may possibly take out something that he specifically liked. That, you know, because I will always deal with, if I'm, if I'm line cutting a scene or something, what's pertinent to the story and what's redundant and, you know, all those kinds of things, you know. And in many cases, maybe even most cases, I find when you have a, a dialogue scene between two people and when you, you take a pair of lines out one place, a pair of lines out another place, the scene is elevated by the virtue that there's a little less of it somehow. You know, it, it, it's amazing how the, the dynamic shifts and what's left, what's left in the show seems to be better than it was when it was diluted by some of this other material. So everybody works a little differently, you know. Uh, uh, it's it's always the most fun to work with people who don't give you very specific notes, mm-hmm. you know. It's it's a it's a little slow. Okay, fine, I got that. You know, it's I I I want to feel more emotion towards that character. This person doesn't seem strong enough. Those are the kinds of things that allow you know at least allow me to then go through the footage again and and let's say re-examine it with, a, with with something different in mind you know um that's that's actually really interesting um you know it's funny i never got i'll just say yeah it's, it's, it, I, I did it as kind of a, a joke on me yeah this the lost scene that i showed at, at edit fest you know with the yeah. where they were standing on either side of that big plate glass uh i don't i don't look at the script when i cut I basically, I, I look at the, I never look at the comments from the set. I don't want to know what the director thought was good. I, I want to be able to judge it myself, and I'm, I find I'm always influenced by that. And so I'm always going, he thought take two was better. I don't think so, and I don't want to, I don't want that to be part of my process. You know, mm-hmm. I find it difficult to, to deal with, and I've only ever encountered one person in my whole career that, if I use take two, you know, if he said take two, he wanted every single cut from take two over and out yeah and in some ways that that made it easy because it was fine i got six takes but take two is what i'm using you know yeah uh because usually you get bits and pieces from every take and words from off stage from somewhere else a lot of times actors uh are less relaxed in their on stage performance and they're not as good a lot of people are and you will find a better performance because they're not as they weren't as uh, nervous or self-conscious off stage. They thought there was less at stake, so you can find certain words or certain phrases sometimes. And if you're lucky, you can put them in their mouths and nobody will know. The scene I brought, which he never asked me a question about it, and the only reason I brought that scene was not because I thought it was the greatest scene, because I actually had something else I wanted to show, but I thought it was an interesting point of discussion was our dailies come in from Hawaii, so they're always two days behind. And if they miss the break-off on the film, then stuff comes even like a third day behind. Anyway, the paperwork wasn't accurate, and my assistant gave me, you know, here's the scene to cut. And it only had a camera in it, basically, which was all the reflection shots. And I didn't know there was a B camera, which was a closer on each of them, that isolated them from the reflections. So I thought the only film I had to make that scene work was the scene, you know, was was the film where 
Jack's reflection is doubled in Kate's shot two or three times. So there's no cheating, you know. And I worked forever to make that scene work with the reflections only because I thought it was all I had. And then the other film came in like two days later and it was like, are you kidding me? You know, but what happened was I only used like three shots of Kate and four or five shots of Jack in that scene from those other pieces. And they were appropriate times to use them. But the scene wouldn't have been as good as it was if I'd have had those other shots that I could bail out of when I was in trouble. When I was thinking, I can't make this match work. It's not working. I would have, I would have, the natural thing would go, well, I can't make this work. I'll use this and it'll be okay. Where when I didn't think I had the other shots, I sometimes had to go back two or three cuts and rework it all into a different performance to try to get a match working. So I had a match of Jack's reflection in Kate's shot that then led back to him or something, you know? And so it was like, the scene is a better scene because I didn't know I had the other stuff. Okay. And it stayed that way eh? like with, um, the reflections in it looked like yeah it did. yeah yeah it did you know i only used a few of the non-reflection shots just because the performance was better and you know it was more focused at that moment in time and like once or twice because the cut just sucked in the reflections and they were, i couldn't figure out a way around it mm-hmm. well it's it's uh, that's a happy uh it's a happy accident and it kind of surprised me when it was done because I, I i knew it wouldn't i go i don't think i would have worked an extra two hours to make those three cuts work if I thought I had a choice. Yeah. You know? How does editing a show like Lost differ from typical editing situations? You know, in a lot of ways, I don't think editing Lost, you know, it, I, I don't think it's different other than, well, it's for me as an editor, it's probably the most interesting thing I could cut on in episodic television. Mm-hmm. Because the flashbacks take us into totally different realms and situations you know, from cop shootouts to, you know, personal romantic stories to everything else that wouldn't be part of the island story, you know. And if you were doing any other series on TV, there, you would only live in one world and kind of there would be one reality, of, you know, of how things work. So it gives it gives variety where to me where there wouldn't be variety. So it's almost like the... It's almost like cutting a new show every week, a, you know, a new, a completely new show of episode that isn't like anything you've cut before. Where, you know, like when I, when I worked on House, you know, it was like all I'm doing is cutting last week's show with a different disease in it, you know. And and so it gets boring really quick because you're just kind of doing a, a variation of the same thing you've already done with just with different words. Every every episode focuses on a different character. Like you were saying, the flashbacks are for each each of the characters. Mm-hmm. Do you find that each episode has a different cutting style for each of the characters, or do you think that just the flashbacks are what's different? No, I think if anything, Lost is. I mean, there's all kinds of mystery and intrigue and subtext going on in Lost all the time, but it's it's more about the humanity of the people than than probably many other you know shows even though it's a fantasy you know the what we learn about a character through flashback will make will then affect how you deal with them in the in the island story because now we know something about them 
and we may stay on them while the, and let them be the observer of part of a scene, you know, and just watch them because now we know what they're thinking because of their history rather than if you didn't have that, you might just wind up cutting around to everybody who's talking, you know, and just playing the scene at face value rather than, than shifting the value to the importance of, of the, you know, the person who's we, who we're highlighting through the flashback. How do you build the characters' nuances to help play each other or each of the characters off of each other to build this this sense of a mystery or this suspense in the show? You know, I think I've always been if if I if if I would say I have a strong point, I would say it's in my observation of humanity, kind of a not a not a studied observation so much, but I, I guess you'd say like an, an instinctual feeling for how people are and what's important for what character. Uh, and so I don't think I, I don't think I think about it too much. I think it just feels right that, that this moment here is something, you know, and occasionally, you know, I will, I'll call Carlton and Damon and say, so I'm in this scene, you know, and, and there's this really cool reaction of Hurley and I don't know what it means, but, you know, and sometimes it's just fine because, you're just going, hmm, what's he thinking? You know, because we don't, we don't certainly don't pay off everything we do, you know. But I'll, I'll ask, is, is that something that would be appropriate or is that working against where you're going, you know? And that happens just occasionally. But, um, you know, a lot of times the actors don't find all the moments either. I mean, surprise, scarily, uh, more times than you would like. You know, when you have an actor who gives you everything you need, it's really pretty easy, you know, in a, in a lot of ways. But when they, they don't give you a lot, and uh, I've worked on shows where the lead is, he tends to be better in his first takes, not necessarily with the words and all that, but his, his what I see going on in his eyes tends to be better than later takes where it just feels like he's checked out a little bit, even though he knows the words better. So that's always a, that was always a, you know, a, uh, a challenge to try to, to use the part where he looked like he was the most engaged and interested. Cause I think maybe he as an actor got a little, once he's run the material a little bit, he's become a little, I think bored is too uncharitable, but, um, you know, the first time he's feeling it anew, he's in the moment more and awful lot of actors are pretty much listening for the cue line so that they can talk and they really, really aren't listening to what the actor's saying. And then when you get really fine actors, you can literally play the entire thing on their face because as an example in the, in the uh, Mad Men thing at Edit Fest, the piece of John in bed that was intercut, it was like a minute of just John's face. And you didn't have to cut away to anybody because you could see him trying to figure out what had happened to him what was going on? Who was this? What should I do? Everything was there on his face. And it was just fabulous, you know. But a lot of times it can be a blank stare that means nothing, you know. And we only, as an audience, bring to it from context, not from what's really there. Nowadays, we don't see cuts that last a minute long. So to see yeah. John's face for a minute is almost uh, unusual nowadays, right? You know, I, I have to say that's something that, at, at risk of sounding like 
you know, like an old codger that uh, thinks the new way of doing things isn't any good. I think there is some of that that, and and I don't think it's just because of editors or anything like that. I think there's this general sense that if the image isn't shifting a lot and moving a lot and ch- you know changing a lot, then we will become bored. We don't see that uh, connection with the characters because it's so fast. We lose that mm-hmm. uh, sense of humanity, I guess. But also the the music that you mentioned is, becomes like a crutch for cutting. So how do you how do you find a balance? I think you know. In the music vein, I think we're always asking ourselves, you know, we ask ourselves during the editing process, because I would say there's probably no show that we put out now that isn't pretty much fully temped out with the best we can come up with for what we think the music should be like. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and a lot of times we'll say, not like this, but tonally like this or something. So at the point we're running with the composer, I mean, we do ask ourselves questions. I mean, on, on the shows that I care about and want to be involved in, you know, we, we constantly say, so, you know, do we really need music here? Is this, you know, or are we just insecure about this scene and we're putting music in because we don't think, we think that the scene support, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and certainly sometimes that's the case. You know, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you do put music in because you think the emotional values you're hoping to get aren't there. So you're trying to support it with, uh, with some score mm-hmm. you know lost is a completely unique animal as far as music and stuff like that goes is, or should i say quantity of music you know well, the definitely. last episode that i cut last year of of lost i had 32 minutes of music in my first cut in a 42 minute show so and it's a huge amount of work how does that affect the cut then like when you're when you're trying to keep the sense of uh, human emotions in there without relying too much on the music if lost is putting so much in um I, and because of the hyper reality of lost um i don't think that i think we rarely are, are going jesus did they put too much music in that or what you know I mean, if you watch The Dark Knight, my guess is it's pretty much almost wall-to-wall music, you know. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that it, in any way it was is you could call it a crutch. You know, some sh- some shows, some scenes. You know, like like personally, I'm not a fan of all all the shows that use nothing but you know just tons of songs. And, you know, in some cases, it's really good, you know, but sometimes it really is working completely counter to what you're hoping to get from the scene, you know. But just to jump back, because you had talked about um, actors' deliveries and actors' faces and how it affects your cuts. In the show House, when you were cutting House, Hugh Laurie comes from a comedy background. How did that affect his delivery, and how did his delivery affect your cuts? Right off the bat, with Hugh... He's about as good an actor as anyone will ever have the privilege to, to edit. Mm-hmm. I mean, truly, he is a, a spectacular actor. And he will always, you know, he is one of those people that you could be just as happy to sit and watch him for the entire scene because he's always listening and thinking and doing something. Um, the, the, you know, the comedy part, obviously, you know, played into the, the his grumpy irony, you know? Mm-hmm. 
really, really well, and his sarcasm and all that stuff. So, you know, with Hugh, it's not it's not so much like let's say what I would do with it is it was just it was there it, there it was you know he's, he's five times better than any other actor in the room so you're always gonna want to favor and and you know his name is on the title of the show so you're always gonna want to favor him you know mm-hmm. but it's quite natural that you would because he's just so good yeah so it's almost like in comedies allowing the because when you whenever I watch a comedy they always allow things to play out in the wide because the delivery's so good or they need you to see something. But for for editing someone like Hugh, it's you want to just give it to him and let him to to yeah give his performance. Yeah. In the kind of comedy that I think that you might be talking about, you know, in editing often we we are either bound to action or reaction in coverage, right? Yeah. So I have to make a choice one place or the other. But in comedy, in a two shot, I can see what you're doing, but I can also see me laughing at the same time, and. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, if, if if it's performed well in a shot where you can see both your characters, it's almost always the preferred way to do it. Mm-hmm. Because you just, you're missing something when you start to try to cut the character, you know, cut it into pieces. Yeah. You, you have to choose, you know, line reaction, line laugh. And sometimes, you know, that's exactly what you want to do because you want to you know, underline or, you know, punch up certain things. But if you've got two people, you know, if you look at all like, God, all the I Love Lucy's and stuff, you know, you you want to you you want to take in everything, um, you know, even even in coverage, if it, let's say it's a an over the sh- you know like a tight over the shoulder of you, but mm-hmm. but but it's like what we would call a dirty single, so it's shot with a longer lens, so you see a good part of my head in the frame, you know, and part oh, yeah. of the side of my face maybe, and if you're saying something important to me and you could just maybe see my head drop because you could, you know, as, as kind of the wind was knocked out of my sail, you know, you could, you might, you could hang on you without having to cutting to me for a reaction. Cause you could feel it in my presence in that frame, you know? And so you don't always feel the need to cut. I think very, I can't remember who said it. And it, you know, maybe it's an old cliche line, but I was, told early on that in the beginning when you're editing you learn where to cut and all that and as you start to get good of good at it you learn when not to cut when to trust your material because you know we you kind of a lot of times feel like you need to you need to and and maybe it's because it's just not compelling if, if it's truly compelling the the uh the decision sometimes can be very hard in you know rather than easy they become hard because now i have to make a choice and I like all of it, mm-hmm. and all of it gives me a slightly different value, you know. So it's really—I uh, mean, it's the best world to be in. Sometimes, you know, we should all have those easy, you know, those kinds of choices all the time. Uh, you know, when I did the the six feet pilot, uh, the woman who played the mother, there wasn't one frame of film that she was in that she wasn't good in, but they but the different performances and different takes in some cases, really quite different. So I was able to, you know, and I did this right into first cut too, is I would go back and be forth between them. So I would try to make her irrationality and her mood swings even greater by going from the most sedate, calm one to the most explosive one, you know, to make her seem like she was really unhinged. Yet yet any of her performance 
was really good. It's just none of them incorporated those kinds of, you know, move, you know, transition. So that was actually pretty fun because you know you could kind of you could kind of keep her contained and contained, and you're kind of going okay, and then she would just be insane, and it would you know, and it was poignant and funny at the same time. I think I think Six Feet Under probably maybe as much if not more than any other show I, I've ever worked on was a way of and I think a lot of people show through showing I guess you'd say a lot of perverse situations mm-hmm. showed us humanity and I think all of us that, that you know viewed the show and enjoyed the show found a lot of humanity and, and stuff that we recognized in these people that were really you know far different than we are but somehow in showing this exaggerated, you know, twisted reality that these characters lived in, somehow it, I think we 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 saw ourselves in there. Somehow we saw human beings. It was like I really I enjoyed that show a lot. You've done some producing too. Yes. When when you've been producing shows, have you found the urge to be in the cutting room or to make suggestions, or do you find that you have no problem sort of stepping back and allowing the editor to do? Well, his thing? I, I always. In, in, you know, in those cases, I, you know, one of the main reasons I was was moved into that position wasn't necessarily because I was the greatest producer available at that time, but because of the skills that I possessed in in dealing with the show from the time it was shot to completion, let's say. And part of that, obviously, is the editing process. And so it's it. Sometimes it was difficult, you know. I mean, I would always let the... I wouldn't interfere with the editor's process at all, but when it came to trying to figure out what needed to be done or in the case of certain editors that you didn't think were maybe as good as you'd like them to be, trying to figure out how to get it where you want, but also you're dealing with someone's ego there. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to be critical. You don't want them to feel threatened or... In, you know, or any of those things. So, you know, you try to find ways of phrasing things towards the positive rather than the negative, you know. Uh, and, and it's the same kind of skill we use as editors when you're dealing with mm, a writer, director, producer. So basically anything that's wrong with the show is their fault, let's say. So I, I would say, you know, real big part of my job is, you know, editing room psychology 101, you know, which is to figure out how you know if you have certain ideas you know you over over time you get a you get a sense of now is not the time to say that i think we should line cut this scene because you know the guy the writer who's sitting in the room with you really likes it so you know you 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 kind of try to figure out how to choose those battles like and save that one for later in the process when you can you know where you can say you know i i can't tell you exactly why but when we get to the scene it just feels a little long and bogged down. You know, do you think there's something we could do here? And so sometimes I already know at least what I think the answer is, but sometimes it's much better to pose things as questions. And they find it, it lures them into the process. And if they, if they, if they trust your judgment, then usually when you say something like that, they'll know it's not, uh, you're not just throwing it out there to say something that you actually feel that way. And they'll go, really? Hmm. Let me think about that. You know, what advice do you have for any young editors or any people just starting out as editors? It, it's you know I'm trying to think how how to say that because I'm trying to think from you know 
I, I, first off, I think you, you have to try to trust your instincts. If your instincts are good, they will most of the time lead you in the right direction. And I, I can tell you from personal experience, there's nothing worse than sitting in a screening that's not going well because you did what you thought they wanted, not what you wanted to do. So, because that's a hard thing. Yeah. You know, it's, easy, it's much easier for me to say, you know, to have liked it that way and have them have a difference of opinion than, than uh, me thinking that's what they wanted only to find out that, no, it's not at all. And I don't know if that's kind of a, you know, for, for fledgling editors kind of comment, but, but certainly instincts is, you know, you look for what's valuable, not necessarily how it's presented to you, what the words in the script are, but you're trying to really look for what the material is about and figure out any way possible to to skew it towards the best thing that you think it can be. Uh, because it's maybe a little different from what from what they're you know what you think the intention was. And actually, you know, you, you can't just put it together and go through it again and go, okay, done. You know, sometimes you go back to that thing over and over and over again. You know figure out what's wrong with it. You know, it's just not quite right. Or maybe it's a lot wrong and you still can't figure it out. You know, it's, I can tell you one thing, having been, a, I've been an editor for mm, 30 years, been an editor. And in a lot of ways, it's not any easier than it was early on. Uh, I have more experience to draw from. I have a little more confidence because of you know, the the knowing that most times when I like it, other people like it. So it gives me confidence in my judgment. Uh, but it's still hard. There's no shortcut to get from, okay, I'm going to start cutting this scene to the end of the scene. It's still going to have its whole set of mysteries and problems and idiosyncratic things that are things that are, that are problems to be solved. And it's a process. And you can only, you know, in some cases you work from the, Hmm, what's wrong with this? And so your mind goes to the most logical alternative. So you try that, and it doesn't work. And then you go, hmm, what's the next thing I can try? So you try that. And and you may, the best thing for that scene may be something that wouldn't have even crossed your mind in the beginning. You know, it's the least likely alternative, 10 or 12 things down the list. But you have to be tenacious enough. I've I said a lot into other people I'm talking. The two things you need is, is, is taste and tenacity. You don't necessarily need to know how and why, but if you know that this looks good or this looks bad and you're patient enough to keep trying until it looks good, then you will get there, you know? Obviously, television requires that we do all of this under a fairly amazing schedule compared to, you know, other, other productions, you know? Uh... But I guess that's where experience comes in too. You know, you've you've been down that road a lot, and so you just you know you've got you've got to apportion your time in a way that you can uh, get it all, get the job done in the right you know in the, in the amount of time you have. One last question: What is your guilty pleasure television show? <laughs> um, I'll begin with: I watch no uh, network television. Uh, I generally would watch movies or, you know, some other things. But recently, in the last few years, I would say the Showtime series are the only ones that I've really, that I've really been watching. So mm-hmm. I've been watching 
which I adored for a certain season, and I TiVo it. Very, there's very few shows that I actually stop and watch, or even TiVo. I watch The Daily Show almost every day. Mm-hmm. Their report. I TiVo those, and that's probably all I watch. If you want to call that a guilty pleasure, it certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and as far as you know, like other shows, uh, I Showtime. I, you know, Showtime Sunday night. So it's it's uh, it's Californication. It's uh, the L word. And even though I didn't really like the Tudors, I think it's a bit of a you know a cheesy show. Mm-hmm. I, I actually I think it's less cheesy in its second season than it was in its first. But if you want to call that a guilty pleasure, I guess you would. And I'll and I'll probably give Robin uh, Crusoe a, a try when it comes on NBC. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for allowing me to inter- uh, to interview you. You're welcome. I'd like to thank Christopher Nelson for joining me. I think we can all agree that the shows that Christopher has worked on have raised the bar in television editing. I'd also like to thank my producer Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.